0: in a world where basketballs are sentient i guess lebron james would be the king and there's only one man who can take on the king in a in a one-on-one match that'll change the world <laughs> i am that man hi um i think i just came up with space jam welcome to geek film critic uh where we explore the best worst and most middle in the world of cinema i'm your host i'm luke jackson your best friend and your resident uh, pediatrician me <laughs> your kids i'll i'll look at them with my medical degree um this week i'm excited because I hate myself, and I didn't want to sleep for a week, so I decided <laughs> that I'd dive into the horror genre. And I watched It from 2017, the Stephen King classic book that was turned into a movie by Anthony... Andy Muschietti? I thought I knew his name, but I, I could be very wrong. <laughs> anyways, I decided to watch... It is Andy. Andy Muschietti. I don't know how you say his name. But anyways, I've decided to watch that this weekend. I've seen it before, and um, I have a really poor tolerance for horror. I don't really watch a lot of horror movies because I don't sleep when <laughs> I watch them. Um, I remember when I was probably at the 10th grade, so 15, 16 years old, 14, 15, the Slenderman game came out where you go and you collect pages in the woods, and I played that in math class and I didn't sleep for a week because I thought Slenderman was outside my door and it was the same week that our uh, our fire alarm broke in our house right outside my room, so it was beeping and I was too terrified to go out and get it, so I didn't sleep. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I decided to watch It again. And um, I've had an interesting relationship with Pennywise the Clown throughout my life because, again, I've seen this movie before. And I was first introduced to It in the fourth grade when I had a friend who was reading the book who really shouldn't have been reading the book because it's a very dark and uh, mature-themed <laughs> read. And so I've kind of been... Fascinated with this character when he told me that it's about a clown who eats kids, and I thought, oh, that's interesting. So I've always, I've always known about the book it since I was just a kid. And uh, when I first watched the the movie and the second movie, I would have uh, dreams where Pennywise would be there, and he wouldn't do anything super sinister, but he would be there. And it, uh, these dreams happen so often that I got to a point where I was no longer scared. It was just kind of like, hey, Pennywise, please exit my dreams so I may have a rest. And so. He's a very powerful character, <laughs> and I um, I feel like I'm not alone here, and I know that Bill Skarsgård, who pa- played Pennywise in the film, has kind of a similar story about it. He um, had a really hard time finding this character. He, he embodied it really well. I was really impressed with his performance, we'll go into that in just a little bit, but in regards to just kind of like the, the aura of this character, in an interview, Bill skarsgard mentioned that he would too kind of had these like obsessive dreams about pennywise all the time and he and he mentioned that pennywise would like visit him all the time this character and it took a lot out of him and he kind of had to go through like a cleansing process after the film the first film was done and then when he came back for the sequel um these he said it was like meeting with like a toxic friend or like a, an old toxic relationship where all of this negativity just came back and so i think he's a really powerful character it's a really interesting character and, and, and i think stephen king does an amazing job in his book about bringing him to life and it's i think he's so fascinating pennywise because he is just the personification of fear right and so It's easy to be obsessed with that, especially if you're like me and you like really love horror movies and horror books, but you're too scared to watch them. So you're kind of on this brink of just like wanting to know about it, but being too scared to jump in. Um, And again, so this is a book by Stephen King and I've read about half of it and it's, it's huge. It's like 1600 pages. It's a massive book and I've read about half of it and I've been trying to read it over the course of like two years and I do really good and then I fall off when things get busy. And anyways, the half that I've read, in my opinion, it's it's miles better than this, than the movies. I haven't seen the miniseries that came out in 1990, but the book is definitely better. So if you're looking to just kind of explore this character, I mean, and, and you only want to do one or the other, I'd read the book instead of watch the movie. And the books are always going to be better than the movies, right? This is always the case. There's never... I don't think there's ever been an instance where a movie is better than the book, right? Cuz they're such different mediums and so adapting them into a film is hard, right? Cuz it's it moves into this very visual medium and we have these preconceived notions of what we want things to look like and plot points that we want there and so and that's not delivered. It's frustrating. So the book is always better. And this movie comparatively, the movie has a lot of pretty major differences. And I I don't really want to go into that here. I I really want to just kind of focus on the movie itself and talk about that. If this isn't a book podcast, this is a movie podcast, so I'm going to talk about the movie as itself, and I'm not really going to reference the book anymore after this point beyond the fact that it's a good book. Um, So the movie It follows uh, a group of kids that are called the Losers Club. They kind of deem themselves this Loser Clubs, and it consists of seven kids Bill, Richie, Ben, Stan, Eddie, Mike, and Bev. And so they all live in this town, Derry, where there's been a series of mysterious disappearances, especially, I think almost exclusively, children have just disappeared. And um, uh, Bill, his younger brother disappeared. And so he's kind of been obsessed with finding him, and they haven't found a body and all of these things. And so these kids uh, investigate this series of disappearances. And each of them throughout the course of before they've become this club of investigating or after they've all had these individual experiences with some sort of mystical horror, right? Sometimes they see a clown, sometimes they see a leper, sometimes they see a headless person. It's all of these different things, but they come to a point and they realize that it's all the same entity that's terrorizing them. And they choose, being led by Bill, to hunt this uh, this monster down to try to in Bill's case avenge his brother or kind of solve this mystery of where his brother is and for these other kids they're kind of going along and sort of like a Goonies stand by me adventure where the kids take on the monster and so it's that sort of genre but it's an interesting take because it's a lot darker and it's not really aimed at (laughs) that age group anyway so Bill is this group's leader and he leads the charge on Pennywise as I mentioned because his brother Georgie uh, was taken by Pennywise, and he's wanting to figure out what happened. So he's really kind of the main protagonist in the film and the and, and the driving force. Um, so this whole film, t- these these actors are obviously all children, and and the and the book kind of spans their entire life, where we have a part where they're kids and a part where they're adults. And the film had a sequel as well that did the adult part, and this. Uh, portion chapter one deals exclusively with them being kids so the first kind of arc in the story and child actors are really difficult sometimes it's really hard and it's hard to find a group of child actors who work well together who who kind of have the chops to make it work and it's rare that we see again outside of this genre of kind of like group kid mystery solving Scooby-Doo again the Goonies-esque kind of films it's, it's rare that they're taken seriously, right? It's, it's, it's easier to bring a group of kids and have sort of a campy, fun movie, but this movie is meant to be a serious, a more serious horror film than those films are. So child actors are hard, and I think they're kind of hard for a couple reasons. One is because these movies are written by adults, and so a lot of the times these kids can have these thoughts where they're just little adult, adults and their dialogue is too advanced for their age or their... They act like adults. They have adult desires and they're not kids. Or on the other side, because again, it's written by adults, they kind of fall into this trap of being over-the-top kids, right? Being like the dad joke. This is how kids talk, right? And so I think this movie does a really good job. And I was really impressed with these actors for the most part. They, They do a really solid job. And it's rare, I think, that we see a group of child actors that is this good. I'd say... I'd say, like, Stranger Things, I think, is the best. Like, that group of kid actors does the absolute best. But I think that, in terms of film, this was, I've been the most impressed with this, but I think they do sometimes fall into the trap of the ladder that I mentioned, of it it, feeling like an an inauthentic child with a lot of, like, the swearing and the conversations and the subject matter that these kids talk about. Like, they, they rip on each other, but I think they rip on each other in a way that, is more an adult saying this is what kids say versus an actual childhood conversation um and so i wanted to get that out of the way because i think the acting for children is impressive but it does have its pitfalls and the the film opens with georgie and bill's little brother chasing his boat and the scene's really great it's really an iconic scene where pennywise pops up in the sewer And kind of tells Georgie this young boy he's probably five or six that there's a circus in the sewer lures him lures him in and bites his arm off and then subsequently eats him and so the scene is I think really really good to introduce both Pennywise and Georgie I think the casting here is excellent I think these kids look the part I think they work great together and Georgie especially I think is a great casting he's a really cute little kid and he's like very innocent, very sweet. He's got these big eyes, and one thing that really impressed me is in the beginning scene. Before Georgie's outside running around, he's he's looking for wax in the basement so he can uh, coat his boat so it floats down the gutters, essentially. And the way that it's shot, it's it's this dark eye shape and these shadows under his eyes. And Georgie, in a way, has a very similar eye shape to Pennywise, and I think this this. Um, parallel and the similarity is really really great because George is kind of this symbol Georgie is a symbol through for Bill throughout the film where Bill is looking for Georgie but he's actually looking for Pennywise and so anyways this casting I was really impressed with really impressed with the parallel really impressed with the way that it was shot and it was definitely very intentional and very smart smart. and Bill Skarsgård as Pennywise as I mentioned before is absolutely excellent I really enjoyed the character design I think he looks really great he's really true to what I figured Pennywise would look like when I have read the books. Um, Well, the book, it's only one. And I I think his design looks great. I think he's very creepy. I like his design more than the 1990 Tim Curry uh, miniseries. And um, Bill Skarsgård's, like, the way he can contort his face is so (laughs) creepy. And he gets these really wide eyes and this kind of... Snide, small grin, and it's it's incredible what what he does with his face, and throughout the film when he's talking, which isn't isn't very often. I think Pennywise only has like four minutes of dialogue through the film, but when he's talking, he gets this like very heavy drool and this line of like spit that kind of always is continuously dripping and running out of his mouth. And I thought this was Bill Skarsgård doing this intentionally, but it turns out that the prosthetics that he's wearing for the teeth because he has these like weird buck teeth in the film when he's not having his sharp monster teeth and um, these these prosthetics caused him to drool and so the director and Bill leaned into this to really to add this drool which I think is absolutely terrifying and very creepy and so I was really I'm always really impressed with Bill Skarsgård he really brings a very creepy atmosphere and tone to Pennywise um, and, and this scene it's, it's, I think it's a really good and unique scare it's like it's original and I, I didn't feel like the film relied on jump scares too heavily in these kind of cheap thrills I read a lot of reviews that kind of believe otherwise but personally I was but, and it could just be because of my inexperience with the, the genre but I, I didn't think that the jump scares were what was scary I thought that they did a good job of creating a creepy and dark atmosphere that forces the viewer to kind of pay attention to the background because you're never sure what's going to be there and you're never sure if there's going to be something creepy to notice and i think the director anthony muschetti really does a great job of creating this background atmosphere i think it's something that he thrives at because a lot of these shots are long and they have a lot of depth from the background right there's georgie in the basement we can see the shelves and 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 a lot of the shots it's present throughout where there are blurry things in the background that if you notice really add to how creepy <laughs> some of the scenes in the movie is and there's this one scene in particular that I really wanted to highlight where it's um Ben he's in the library where he spends a lot of time and he's flipping through this book and he flips the page but the picture on the page is staying the same so it's kind of and this eerie music is playing and it's getting more intense as he's flipping through this book and he's kind of, and he notices that there's a, that there's a um, head in one of the trees as he's reading an article about a huge fire that happened in Derry years ago and in the background at the beginning there's this old woman in the library and she's just working and as things get more intense we, we cut back and we see this old woman in the background again and it's blurry but it's like you can make out enough that she's like doing this horrible creepy stare into the camera with this horrible contorted wide mouth grin staring directly at us and Ben. And it's things like this that I think really add to the atmosphere of the film and this creepy aura. And I was really, really impressed with that. Um, the scariest scene in the movie for me was in a the, the church with Stan. Stan is of the Jewish faith and he's his bar mitzvah is coming up. So I believe he's reading from the Torah. And at one point his dad tells him to go put the Torah back in his office. And so he goes into this office and there's this painting on the wall, which is... The director names Judith, and in this painting is this ungodly, disfigured, elongated woman holding a flute. And it's the creepiest part of the movie. She's horrible to look at. This painting is so spooky, and uh, the scene is great. This painting falls over, and the camera moves very slow. And it's dark, and we kind of see Stan's face light up as we hear this uh, this eerie flute in the background. And we know that, like, you can just tell that the monster is right behind Stan. It's one of those moments where it's like, oh, it's right behind me, isn't it? But it does it in a way that's, like, so slow and tension-building and anxiety-filling that I just, I hated it. It's And then we kind of flip around and we see this monster and it's this huge disfigured woman. And it's, right, a, a lifelike version of the painting. And... For me, these are always the scariest things in horror movies when it when it's, like, unearthly, uncanny valley, kind of very creepy, <laughs> humanoid things that aren't human. And if you don't know what uncanny valley is, it's just kind of this phenomenon of, like, we see things that look human, but they're, like, bare, like, they're enough not human that our brain is like, that's not human. You need to get out of here. And so it's genuinely spooky, genuinely horrible to look at. And this was the scene, this, this weird moving... Painting woman, Judith, where the first time I watched it, I, it, it made me take my laptop that I was watching it on from downstairs in the basement to upstairs in the living room because I said I can't watch this in the basement. I was too scared. <laughs> and so this painting is a inspired by a painter. I'm going to butcher his name, so I apologize if anybody is a big fan of his paintings, but it's inspired by a, uh, an artist named Amidi Modiglini. I'm sorry, <laughs> He's... And, and his paintings are horrible, and the director, Michetti had a painting in his home, and he kind of mentioned that this painting terrified him, and so if you look these paintings up again, Amidi Mod- Modigliani, if you just look up Judith painting for it, you can get a visual, but this these paintings are very similar. They're these elongated oblong faces with these super long necks and these dead eyes, and they're horrible to look at and why anybody would ever want one in their house is beyond me. Um, another scene that I really wanted to mention, uh, which was what I thought a really good horror scene, was the projector scene when the kids are flipping through projector slides of um, the dairy sewer system because they've kind of discovered that Pennywise lives in the sewers and they want to see where it all connects and all that kind of stuff. And so they're flipping through these pictures, the old, these old slides with the projector. And then suddenly these pictures of Georgie come up and all the kids are freaking out and the slides keep going and going and going and kind of reveal Pennywise who then pops out of the screen. And is like this huge big monster. And, I, and I, I really like the strobe effect where it goes like light and dark, light and dark and then things are changing. I think it's really creepy. And I believe in Insidious, which I haven't seen, but there's a similar scene in Insidious with a projector. And I, just, I really like that idea. I think it's really creepy to kind of take those things and, and make them Make them horrible and make them scary, and make them horrifying, and so that's another scene that I thought I thought it was really fresh. Even though it was done in Insidious, I thought it was a really good way to kind of have this group together for the first time dealing with Pennywise, and um, ooh, <laughs> excuse me, uh, Pennywise is obviously the, the biggest antagonist, and this is the first time that these kids see Pennywise together. And I think it's really interesting if we kind of dive into why Pennywise doesn't take the chance to kill these kids when he does, because he has the chance to, to take all of these kids multiple times throughout the movies, right? Each of them individually have their own experience with them. And they don't really get away, he lets them get away, right? And so I, here's my, here's my hot take and my big theory. I think pennywise is a good guy i think he's the good dude and i think this theory is definitely dis-, dis-, dis provable in the book but in this movie universe hear me out i think pennywise is the hero of the film and so <laughs> this is going to be a-, a very deep dive and probably a little bit stretched but i've been thinking about this for a long time ever since i first saw the movie and read the book i really am thinking that pennywise is not that bad of a dude and so if we look at who these characters are each one of these kids are loners to begin with right they don't really have friends they they outside of bill richie and eddie have have hung out and they're friends but other than that these kids are loners they're losers and what brings them together that's pennywise ben brand new in town has no friends pennywise brings them together by using henry bowers the big bully to kind of attack him he falls down who protects him who's there to protect him the kids, the losers, so they become friends. (laughs) And then Beverly as well, similar, Beverly shows up, there's a rock fight, these kids are there, and there we go, now they're friends, it kinda bonds them together. And then we have this projector scene, and the trauma there causes Bev to hug Bill, which creates a romance. They later kiss after they make a blood pact to come back to Derry if Pennywise comes back. Pennywise is the one bonding these kids and these friends for life. And this is going to dive into chapter two a little bit, so spoilers ahead if you haven't seen the second one. But every one of these kids after this blood pact, after they've defeated Pennywise, leaves Derry, except for Mike. And so when they leave, their lives without Pennywise aren't very good. I mean, monetarily, they're all successful, and I'll go through each of them. So Ben is a successful but very lonely and very unfulfilled architect. Bill is successful, but he's a very unfulfilled uh, screenwriter and novelist. He's struggling in his marriage, and he's struggling with writer's block and trying to figure out what his next big book should be. Bev is a very successful fashion designer, but she's in a very abusive marriage. Eddie owns a successful limo company, but is extremely lonely, lonely, extremely anxious, and is also in an abusive relationship with the woman he married, who is essentially his mother. Mike is very lonely And he's the only one living in Derry, right? He has no friends. He lives in a library. His life's not going great. Richie is is a very lonely comedian who's hiding from his sexuality. He's had this hidden past of his, or this hidden personality of being gay. And he's hid this and he's ashamed of it his whole life. And Stan, well, (laughs) Stan's a little bit different because Stan is the only one who doesn't bend to the whims of Pennywise and comes back. He doesn't, he isn't the one, he's the only one who doesn't honor the blood Pact, and he actually ends up killing himself before he comes back to dairy so he's the only one who gets out and he's the only one who dies from his own personal causes and he's not better off for this um from this experience with Pennywise and so does he put a does he put a wrench in my theory no because he's the only one who makes a choice and because he makes a choice to not I guess, follow, again, the whims of Pennywise, he's the only one punished for us. All of these other ones, they all come back. They all fight Pennywise again. And where do they end up because they come back to Derry? Bev and Ben start a relationship. We assume they get married. They fall in love, which we've been waiting for since the beginning. Ben's been in love with Bev since he met her at the school. Richie confesses his love for Eddie, who does granted die, but Eddie dies surrounded by, for the first time, people that he loves and he's finally fulfilled when he dies with this act of uh, heroism that he hasn't had in his entire life he's always kind of been this background character he's been weak he's been scared he finds himself and then dies so he gets the escape he wants as well as a peaceful death with those he loves well peaceful is a little bit of a stretch i guess he does get like stabbed. (laughs) anyways um mike he gains inner peace by, by solving the dairy mystery of Pennywise and bringing these people together. He's finally a leader. He finally makes peace with where he's at. And the death of his parents after Pennywise dies. Um, Richie finds himself, finally accepts who he is in his sexuality by confessing his love for Eddie and Eddie accepts him. Bill gets over his writer's block and reconnects with himself in a way that teaches him to appreciate life. So, through Pennywise all of these people are happy and he's and the only reason they're happy is because they've come back to Derry to deal with Pennywise. So Pennywise in my opinion is a <laughs> is a good guy and he has a weird kind of understanding but he's come to earth he's this alien and he's come to earth to bring this group of kids together because he's a in essence a sort of god. So that's my theory. <laughs> And uh, was he the good guy? You tell me. You can make your decision for yourself. And so, although the film has a lot of good things, there are a, a few negatives that I wanted to uh, highlight as well. I think the score is probably was probably the lowest point for me. the The music in the film felt like a huge missed opportunity. I think music plays a huge part in horror movies, and in the limited ones that I've seen, makes a huge difference. Like it, we, you, you can have these really haunting themes that stick with you. Like in John Carpenter's Halloween, right? That Mike Myers, that high string is iconic. And I think finding something, making something of that level is rare, but I think attempting to is really important because it gives the character a theme. Pennywise doesn't really have a theme, right? And he's a huge character who's absolutely deserving of a theme. So why he didn't get one was a little bit frustrating to me. Um, So what we get instead of a theme is kind of like a forgettable piano and it's sentimental at parts and i mean there are strings in the in the tense parts that are fine but overall it's really forgettable and then we also have these really weird transitions of music throughout the film where we have like sentimental childhood nostalgic themes and and piano and keys and then they transition into like an 80s rock song or bust a move and <laughs> It's really odd and the one that really again threw me off is there's this scene where these kids bond for the first time and they they're cliff jumping and they're playing in the water and it's again this this theme of nostalgia and these keys are playing and it's it's like a beautiful moment and then it transitions into bust move <laughs> and it just doesn't work and transitions like this happen more than once it kind of happened a lot there's another scene where it's this really weird or this really creepy and really eerie strings and piano as they're in Bev's house. And Bev has had this experience where uh, blood has shot out of her sink. And so they're approaching this bathroom that's covered in blood. And then they're like, well, let's clean it. And then it transitions from eerie music to like campy, light 80s rock. And it, did, it didn't work for me. It took me out of it every time this happened. and I And I really disliked it. Um, the kid who plays Henry Bowers is also a bad actor. I had really, really <laughs> he was the child that I had the biggest issue with. I thought all the other child actors did really well, and I mean, they're children, so sometimes the, their performances fall short. But for the most part, they did really well, except for Henry. Every time he delivered a line, I cringed. It was it wasn't good. He was definitely the weakest link in the film, which was a bummer because he has a, he has a pretty big part and he has a lot of screen time. Um, and Pennywise is really great. I think he's a great character. I think Bill does a, Bill Skarsgård does a great job. But at the end, there's this point where he laughs at Bill's stutter, which I thought was so wild and such a weird choice. It's at the very end of the movie where Pennywise has kind of captured Bill and all the other losers are around. And, he's, and Pennywise is like, I'll take Bill and go for my long rest. And, and you can all leave and you can grow up and be happy. Or I'll kill you all. So he kind of gives him this ultimatum, and Bill is kind of like, "Leave, do it. This was my fault. I led you guys in here. Go." <laughs> and he stutters because one of Bill's character traits is he has the stutter. <laughs> and Pennywise laughs at his stutter. He like repeats what Bill said: "Is <laughs> stutter." <laughs> it felt so unnecessary (laughs) I thought it was so funny and it took me right out of what was supposed to be a really intense moment that Pennywise was was like look at this idiot with a stutter I thought it was so weird and then also my last issue with Pennywise is his last line before he falls into a essentially a well They, they beat him up and they're like we're not scared of you anymore and he's like cowering away and he lets go and he falls into this well And his last line before he falls is, he just says, fear. And then he falls and that's it. And I think this is a really weird choice and I've looked into it, I've really thought about it. And like, I guess it could be indicative of the fact that he's never felt fear before. And this is his first time fearing these kids. And so he's like, oh, this is what fear feels like. Or it could be like, he's saying that he's not gone. Right. It's like you're going to have to continue to fear me. And, you know, what like it could be in that direction. But it was mostly just felt like bad writing. And again, it was just a moment where it was supposed to be intense and it just took me right out of it. And I thought, why did he like it didn't make any sense to me that he said fear. And so those are my issues with it. Overall, I I did enjoy the movie and uh, I would give it three and a half out of five red. I love dairy balloons. So it's a pretty good movie. I, I didn't hate it. I didn't absolutely love it. It was better the first time I watched it. It's not a movie I think that deserves a lot of rewatching. I think it's a fun movie to watch once because I don't think I'm going to be revisiting it anytime soon. Um, and so now I got a few reviews that we're going to talk about and then we'll wrap it up. But uh, the first review I wanted to talk about is a uh, one or just a half star out of five. And this review is from Letterboxd user Aiden, Mac- Aiden Macalesso. He says, obligatory watch after finishing the book which is a masterpiece this however is unwatchable imagine being handed a liquid liquid gold as a blueprint for a film and desecrating it so violently that it doesn't feel like a film it doesn't tell a story and it certainly does not understand the spirit of stephen king to a jaw-dropping degree anthony muschetti and everyone credited in this movie is now officially at the head of my kill list p.s it shouldn't be a movie it should be a 10-hour miniseries directed by mike flanagan and I actually agree with that point. I think I think it would make a really interesting 10-hour miniseries if they really dove into it. And I actually think a lot of books deserve this treatment instead of going the movie route. I think the movie route makes the most sense financially because it's easier to draw people in for a two-and-a-half-hour movie from a huge book. But I think like even like Harry Potter and books like that, I think if there was a 10-hour miniseries, I think they'd be way better. I think we'd get way more detail. And it would be, way, it'd be fan service, right? But... Anyways, so this uh, Aiden mentions that this book doesn't or this film does not capture the spirit of Stephen King's book at all, which I think is wrong. <laughs> I think it's a lie. And my biggest piece of evidence towards the argument is the fact that Stephen King really liked this movie. And so clearly he must disagree. And I think he has complete ownership of his work and people can take whatever they want from his work, but he thinks it captures the spirit. So it must, right? <laughs> That's what I think anyways. And it's not like Stephen King always likes his, the movies that are made from his work. He, he has had so many, so many of his books turned into movies. Uh, one really notable one is he hated, he hated The Shining, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. He hated it. He thought it was horrible. He thought it completely butchered what he was trying to do with the characters. And he really disliked it. He disliked it so much that he's disowned that version. And he made his own movie. He made his own film. He wrote and directed his own. I don't know if he directed it. Don't quote me on that. But I know that he wrote his own screenplay. And supposedly it's not very good. This. His own personal the shining. But. He, I don't know. To me it proves that he's not just willy nilly. Like wow it's cool that my. My. Books become a movie. I'm going to like it. Right. He. He really liked this film. And to me that shows that. He. The author. <laughs> thinks that it is. indicative of what he was going for in the book. Um. And all things considered, I do think it was a good adaption from the parts of the book that I've read and granted I've only read half of it but you know this book the book is it's not linear. It doesn't take place chronologically. it kind of bounces between childhood and adulthood and these different characters and which you know that works in a novel medium. And I think the way that the story is told here as a linear film is really admirable. I think it works really well considering, how much material there was to go off. To make any 1,600-page book into a two-hour movie, it's hard work. There's a lot of stuff you have to cut, and you have to decide how to tell the story differently, especially if the book is nonlinear. Because telling a nonlinear film is hard. It doesn't work as well, right? It's, it's very rare that that happens. And so, especially for a blockbuster film... Right, this is a big studio film. It's not like an indie film. It's not even an A24 film who kind of lets the director take the work and really expand upon it, and it's usually original ideas. It's, it's a adaption of a really popular book from a big blockbuster studio that was released in the summer. Like It's a blockbuster movie. I think all things considered, it's really well done. Um, I also think comparing the book to the movie... Is dumb in the sense of being like, well, the book's better because no doy, the book is better. It's obviously going to be better, as I mentioned before. It's always going to be better. I, I think comparing them is just setting yourself up for disappointment because obviously you're going to like the book more, right? Because the book is the original work; it's not the adaption. And so, and honestly, in in, in instances like this, if you haven't read the book, I know that there's the saying that's like see the, or read the book before you see the movie. I think that's dumb. (laughs) See the movie first, see a visualization of it, then go into the book. And then I think it it makes your decision lighter. I remember when I first saw Percy Jackson, when I was, it came out a long time ago, but I saw the movie, I saw it before I read the book and I didn't mind the movie when I was younger. I thought it was a pretty good movie. And then I read the books and I was like, oh, that movie butchered the storyline, but I have no contempt for the movie because I watched the movie first. (laughs) And so Watch the movie first and then read the book. I think that's a smart way to do it because then you can form an opinion on the movie that's separate from the work and you're not weighted down by your personal expectations of what your rendition of the book is going to be. Because in your head when you read the book, you've created a movie, you've created visuals. And so I think it's dumb to... to, I think you're setting yourself up for disappointment if you're going into a movie thinking that it's going to be as good as the book. I think that's dumb. Uh, The the next review is a 1 out of 10 review from IMDb user sonic video sonic says what a joke i walked out three quarters through it basically the only thing the movie had in common with the book was the names and a similar storyline <laughs> i have to take a break right there he says basically the only thing this movie had in common with the with the book was the storyline and the characters <laughs> so it's the same i didn't notice that when i worked it <laughs> the first time what a dumb thing to say the only thing the movie had in common with the book was the names and the storyline. What else is there in the book? <laughs> like it missed events, but the storyline and the characters are the... That's dumb. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, he continues and says, Imagine it being written by a high school student instead of King and receiving a C+. That's what it is. Utter garbage. What an insult to King, like most of his books to movies. And let's see. Oh, the F-bomb. Every other word out of all the kids' mouth was the F-bomb, seems like... Bev, a social outcast in the book, looks like a hot 20-something hooker slut. And the clown, bad again. Don't waste your money on this flop. So there's a lot to unpack here. First, I want to go into the fact that he walked out three quarters of the way through it. My man Sonic Video watched 75% of the movie and then left. That's a lot of movie to watch before you leave. Like Why bail at that point? Just stick around for the last quarter. That's like eating all but three slices of pizza in a box and saying, this pizza sucks, I want a refund. You, you can't eat the meal and then decide you want a refund, right? I I just feel like watching an hour and 42 minutes of a movie and then being like, well, I'm not sticking around for the other 33 is just ignorant and a waste of your time. You might as well finish it out and see how it ends if you've stuck it out that far. I've only ever walked out of two movies in my life and both times have been within the first 10, 20 minutes, right? And it, it's... If you're not going to like something, you know right at the beginning. So it seems odd to me that he would stick around for 75%. And again, we have The Book is Better, which again, duh, of course it is. And there's never, I, again, there's never been a worthy comparable adaption since Lord of the Rings. I don't think where people can say, well, this is a good adaption of the book. They did a good job. I have I don't think I've ever seen a film <laughs> based on a very popular novel that I thought, oh, yeah. That did it justice because they never do because it's a different medium it's a, it's a completely different thing and i think you obviously have to compare when you do that but i think setting yourself you're setting yourself up for disappointment when you're when you're so passionately going into a movie being like this has to be the book or i'm gonna hate it and sonic video also brings up a, a good point about bev I, I gotta give him credit there for being sexualized in the movie I totally agree. There was a couple scenes where I was really uncomfortable with the way that they were sexualizing this character who was meant to be, what, 12, 13 years old, a young girl. And I I think that that was uncomfortable and for sure was overly sexualized. However, in the source material in the book, she is way more sexualized. Not making this okay, but if anything, Muschietti toned it down in the film because seriously, the book gets so wild that's some parts with with Bev and so again I I don't think it was right to sexualize Bev in the movie at all but I think saying that Bev was a social outcast in the book and was not sexualized as Sonic video does in this review is the dumbest thing I've ever heard because the book is way more (laughs) sexualizing of her character (laughs) Anyways that's gonna do it for me for it I appreciate you listening if you've made it this far. I appreciate you listening if you've listened to any other episodes. If you like what you're hearing and you want to say that I do a bad job, <laughs> I do a good job, if you want to let me know your thoughts on the movie, if you want to tell me that I'm wrong, if you want to suggest another movie, please do. You can shoot me an email at luke.jackson at thegeekwave.com or you can follow me on Twitter at underscore underscore Luke Jackson. Um, and I, yeah, I really I really like doing this and I really appreciate listening it's a great opportunity for me to vent some of my crazy feelings about film because what do i know <laughs> um i'm gonna leave you all with the wise words of a letterboxd reviewer laney Moore, who says pennywise low-key hot <laughs> uh for a film critic i'm luke jackson